You're listening to Work Tape, episode 80. Welcome back to this edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Grubin Grover. And uh, last episode, we talked quite a bit about artificial intelligence and kind of the relationship that artificial intelligence is having within the music industry as a whole, whether it comes to lyric generation or in a lot of cases, how it is somewhat digitally resurrecting deceased artists and uh, giving us a taste of what the music might have sounded like, you know, to this day. Now, in regards to AI and resurrecting some of these very acclaimed, venerated artists, um, that has not gone without its fair share of controversy, specifically in regards to deceased artists and regards to those artists who have passed away. One of the first real notable examples of this particular practice was at Coachella uh, about 10 years ago um, was when they issued out the Tupac hologram. So about 10 years ago, maybe a little more at Coachella, I think it was a performance uh, with Dr. Dre um, and Snoop Dogg. And then they decided to have the big reveal be that they digitally brought back Tupac in order to perform with Dre and Snoop. And it had a mixed reception, mostly because of kind of the thing that Isaac and I touched on before, which was kind of the idea of letting dead artists be dead and kind of giving them their peace. Um, However, there was a lot of people who felt like this technology was unlike anything that they had ever seen before, just because the accuracy of Tupac himself, the way that they were able to essentially put him in the Coachella, you know, environment. I think at one point he even said, you know, like, what's up Coachella or something like that. And, you know, got him back to performing. And of course, many of the people who are at Coachella really didn't get the opportunity to see Tupac live ever. You know, he was taken so early in his life. So there was kind of a mixed reception with it. There was a lot of people, I think, who were blown away by the technology and just, you know, it was kind of an unforgettable moment in that respect. In the case of the Tupac instance and in the case of, them using it to regenerate prints for the Super Bowl in Minnesota, they were kind of one-off instances. So while it is exploitive, it wasn't like they did a digital tour of Tupac. It wasn't like you had Dre and Snoop go on a citywide, nationwide, or you know, international tour, you know, bringing the Tupac hologram along. You know what I mean? I guess it wasn't like a prolonged use. It was a one-off, wasn't it? Yeah, specifically for Coachella. Yeah, it is a bit of a gray area for me, right? I still think it's kind of weird. I think it's better, like, if we're going to do this kind of technology, I think it's okay for us to, like, or maybe it's better if we just keep it as demonstration. But when they kind of, you know, tickets to see this artist, you know, they're going to want to do more and more. Like people don't just want to stop at one. They want to go to two and then three and then four and so forth. Right. And that kind of leads a nice segue into an example where they actually did have multiple instances and multiple shows 
which was the Whitney Houston hologram at Harris Casino in Las Vegas. They had basically a hologram that you paid. You paid to basically go see the digital hologram of Whitney Houston perform all of her hits, which I kid you not, the first time that I saw Billboard promoting this particular show, I did have to double take for a second. I'm like, there's no way that that is actually happening. I had to really think to myself, like, are they serious right now? (laughs) Especially with Whitney Houston, where her death was like so recent, I feel like. It was also very tragic. I mean, Tupac's was bad too, but I almost feel like Whitney's was more disgracing. Yeah, because I mean, with Whitney Houston, you had the situation where it was a battle with substance. It was a long-standing battle with substance, and basically what it sounded like is, unfortunately, she succumbed to the, the demons that she had been fighting for, you know, basically 20, 30 years up until that point. And so, yeah, the whole idea of ODing in the, the tub, it was actually very reminiscent of a lot of the deaths that you saw within members of, like, the 27 Club where you had like, you know, Jim Morrison, I think, kind of went out in a similar fashion. I want to say Hendrix kind of went out in a somewhat similar fashion, too. So it was actually a bit old school in regards to how that happened. But still, like, yeah, extremely tragic. And especially because Whitney was, I believe, slated to perform at like a, a Grammys after party or something. And people were actually really excited to see Whitney kind of come back and sing some of these, you know, longstanding hits. Because basically, you know, she hadn't really been doing a whole, whole lot in that era, mostly because of, once again, kind of the battles with different substances. So people were really looking forward to it. People were were saying that this was going to be kind of something to somewhat put her like back on the map. Or if anything, it was going to be just like, hey, it's nice to see her perform again. And it's nice to see her like, you know, in a good spot. But then unfortunately, like I said, you know, one thing led to another and uh, she didn't make it. And then, like I said, it was on the night of the Grammys too. Mm. So the timing of all of that was just, was just not great, but yeah. And I guess what I looked at the Harris page, I guess they're not doing the show anymore, which I guess is a step in the right direction. Supposedly they're saying that it's low ticket sales which that gives me, you know, a bit of hope in humanity. Yeah, for what it's worth, we'll take it. Yeah, that gives me some hope that even we as humans are like, nah, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Like, the thing is in regards, obviously that one being that it's multiple shows and that they were using it as kind of a promotional selling point of people to go to the casino. I felt like that was definitely more of like, you know, milking and or exploiting kind of the the Whitney Houston brand, like her as a artist and person, and of course, kind of tapping into nostalgia, which I feel like that's what a fair amount of Vegas has been doing for, you know, the last like half century is they've been kind of tapping into nostalgia in a big way. They've been doing that since Elvis was there. Vegas has never been blameless. <laughs> to my knowledge. No, no. And I mean, the thing with the Elvis thing, which I think there's been digital recreations of Elvis too. I mean, pretty much all of these 
kind of landmark artists that we've mentioned have had some sort of hologram or digital recreation. I feel like Elvis and Michael are like, I can't think of any artist more clone than those two. Oh, yeah. Well, especially with Elvis, because you get all those impersonators that are like in Vegas and whatnot. Yeah. Specifically who are impersonating like that era of Elvis's career. You know, you don't see a lot of people do, you know, the Elvis when he was on, I don't know, was it Sun Records or Chess Records or whatever it was? Oh, yeah. They don't do a certain iteration of other ones. They always do him in the white suit. They always do Vegas. Yeah, you're right. Which is just sad because in a way, like you want to talk about someone who is heavily exploited in music. The whole reason why Elvis was in Vegas was because of exploitation. Elvis actually wanted to tour. He wanted to go play in other parts of the world. But basically his manager behind his back signed a deal basically with the casino or the hotel at the time that, you know, there was obligated a certain amount of performances basically because the manager was in debt. And by getting Elvis to do these performances, they essentially canceled out his debt. So there was just a lot of ill intentions behind it. Oddly enough, you want to have a full circle moment. Whitney Houston's mom, Sissy Houston, sang backup for Elvis in Vegas. Hmm. That's pretty full circle. Which I didn't even know that uh, for kind of a little while. But in a way, it makes a lot of sense. It was really interesting because that was kind of a thing where where music really did get passed down. Because Sissy Houston was, you know, really great in the gospel and soul arena. But then Whitney just took it even further, as opposed to so many artists or musicians that have kids where the kids don't take it nearly as far as they did. Right. And of course, you have like Michael Jackson, who took it, you know, way further than, you know, anything that Joe did, you know, so. But anyway, back to the Harris Whitney Houston hologram concert debacle. Um, yeah, it's just it's weird. And honestly, there's a moment in um, I'm not sure if you've seen Blade Runner 2049. Nope. Everyone's telling me to see it. <laughs> uh, you should. Because there's a part where they go to basically what's left of Vegas, you know, because this is way out in the distant, distant future and most things are not functioning anymore. And they actually have a hologram Elvis performing. So the fact that like life imitated art in that way with Whitney Houston was kind of just like, oh, I can't get behind it. And then it's just I don't know. I just I think that to charge people, I don't know what they were charging people for this concert. I'm sure they were Vegas prices. Yeah. So if you're charging Vegas prices for a digital replication or kind of a, a digital shell of what, you know, Whitney embodied, that, that's just like, yeah, it does make me kind of feel like a little sick in that way. I think it should. Now, granted, I don't know if they had approval from the estate. Maybe the estate cleared it. But still, even if the estate did clear it, that is still like very money hungry. It doesn't make it okay. Right. Because the estate is still not the person. Right. It's the representatives, supposedly, or it's at least supposed to be. It's supposed to be the representatives of, you know, the person. And we saw the same thing with... As we've talked about numerous times, the gay estate, too, is like really money hungry as well with all the like kind of frivolous lawsuits that they've thrown around. And I feel like in some cases, like 
the estates have essentially like piggybacked off of, you know, the artist, you know what I mean? Like in the case of the gay estate, I feel like many of the other members of Marvin Gaye's family have basically just rode his coattails off of the work that he did and haven't really done much of anything original themselves. And I'm not sure what it is with the Houston estate, but I would imagine that there is definitely members of the Houston estate that let's just say are probably still getting paid dividends from stuff that Houston did 30 years ago. And especially with that biopic that just came out with Whitney Houston too. Yeah. They're definitely getting some kickback from that. Wow. Without a question, which that biopic was, um, was okay. (laughs) You, You didn't really miss too much, Isaac. There were some parts of Houston's life that were in there that I didn't know about, including like kind of some relationships that she had that I was unaware of. Um, But overall, it wasn't like a a straight out of Compton or Ray or something like that, where I'm like, you must go see that. (laughs) I'm pretty far removed from now, aside from the fact that I do love documentaries and even I take those with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. So I've seen Bob Marley documentaries. I've seen. Yeah. Someone like Joy Division. I've seen different artists and bands and people, right, of different areas of art or of influence or culture. Yes. And some biopics. I kind of like biopics, you know, it it is entertaining. So I guess I'm technically contributing to the machine, if you will, the machine that I rage against. (laughs) But I still kind of stand by the fact that I would do just fine without these biopics and documentaries and holograms because. I think they're ultimately exploitive. Now, let me kind of put my hand back into that pile. I'm going to pull documentaries out of there. Documentaries are a little bit of a a double-edged sword as well. It's more of a gray area because documentaries, I think, more often have the potential to be respectful rather than exploitative. Yeah. But even then, I like kind of keeping it at a documentary like length with people. I don't really like to get any more than that because I feel like anything more than that is very intrusive. And even with the documentary, I still don't want to act like I know everything about the person because what people will do is they'll watch a documentary and act like they know everything. You know, I kind of keep my Bob Marley and Nirvana to myself. You know what I mean? I'll watch a ton of documentaries on them because I like them as artists. Hmm. But trying to get into the whole speculation and, oh, I know who did what, I think is just, I think that's really dumb. I'm sorry. I mean, it seems like everyone's an expert on what Courtney did or what Kurt did, or this or that, right? I I just think at the end of the day, were you there, right? Yeah. Or Selena's story was sad, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And with, you know, the woman that they had in charge of the funds and everything. I mean, I I have some opinions about it, but what does it matter? Mm -hmm. And so I think it gets, you know, oh, this person was dating who? Like, who cares? Right. Well, and I, I was about ready to say, like, I think that Marley documentary was actually pretty good molly documentaries are pretty respectful most of them the estate is kind of another thing because there are a lot of things about the estate that i don't like in fact there are things with marley's bassist i don't know what aston did i don't know if aston was a good member or a bad member i can't tell you that i know his character right but there again take it with a grain of salt there was rumor of aston's uh, he had issues with the estate you know he had some songwriting credits apparently or he didn't get credited enough for his playing and I often credit this guy 
as probably one of the greatest bassists of all time, from one of the greatest rhythm sections of all time in a band, from one of the greatest bands of all time, underneath one of the greatest artists of all time. The Whalers are huge, and I love them, but I like the whole band. Even Peter Tosh, because Peter Tosh was pretty fiery, but people paint him to be like the bad guy, right? But at the end of the day, you know, Bob has his issues, right? And Neville has his issues. You know, it's a band full of imperfect people. Right. And so when I try to to put a spin on, oh, well, this person's a bad guy and this one's a good one, this one's a victim, you know, I'm like, hardly, right? What did the victim do, though? Right. And what did the bad guy not do? Like, I want to know it from a neutral perspective. Hmm. So that's my issue with documentaries is there's always an angle. Of course there is. Yeah. And I think there is even a Netflix one in regards to Marley throwing a concert, I think in Jamaica, I think it was the one that someone attempted to kill him. I believe it was the one where he, the stabbing attempt, I think it was about. They've done a lot of documentaries with that detail in it, but I think Netflix was the very first one to like truly hone in on that one aspect of his life. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, I think it was about like a benefit concert that he later threw. Smile in Jamaica? Yeah. In Jamaica. Yeah, that one's a good one. That one's a, they have different versions of that song, I think. Um, the bonus track in uh, Kaya. Wow. 1978. I haven't listened to that album in probably a couple of years. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, the Kaya album is great. It's one of the ones that I think true Marley aficionados really like probably. It's my second favorite album. Catch a Fire is my favorite because that's pre-Trumpet early Whalers with the trio. Yes. And then my second is Kaya. And so I think Kaya is my favorite modern iteration of the Whalers before Bob died. And then would you put Exodus after that? Ooh, you're not going to like me. It's after Uprising. Exodus is probably my least... No, no, no. Confrontation is my least favorite of the studio releases. So I think it's Catch a Fire, Kaya, um, Uprising. Um, and Exodus. No, Survival's before it. <laughs> wow. I like Survival. <laughs> so you're really a big contrarian, I guess, in that respect. I'm a Bob snob, yeah. And then Rasaman Vibration comes before. I, I Dude, I love that album. That one's so good. But no, no, Exodus is a great album, dude. It's It really is a nevermind for its time. I'm not hating on it. In fact, I think Exodus is the most, it really is probably the most influential reggae album because you listen to Steel Pulse and you listen to a lot of artists after Exodus and they're totally just picking off that album. And no disrespect to Steel Pulse. Steel Pulse are great, but you can hear how Exodus influenced the industry, not even just in reggae, but for sure it definitely influenced modern reggae, uh, reggae records. It's a pioneer for its time. You know, it's a great, it's a perfect album if you want to talk about perfect albums, but it's not perfect to me, if that makes sense. Gotcha. I see. Yeah. Me personally, you know, it's like, eh, you know, these are good ones, but I think the hooks are strong. I, I like the hooks from Kaya. I like the hooks from Survival. I like, and Exodus is hooky, but I still prefer his other records. I think Exodus is a great album for songwriting, but if you really want to appreciate the musicianship and the songwriting, you're better off looking at other albums of theirs. Gotcha. Because Exodus is almost too stripped down for me. Right. It's almost too perfect as far as songwriting. It, gets, it bores me sometimes. Gotcha. So, but it's not bad. It's not bad. Just letting you know. Yeah. And with the estate and, yeah, the House of Marley and how the House of Marley has now, you know, ventured into all kinds of different 
products and you know whatnot. They have like turntables. Of course, they have ganja too, which is really interesting. You know, they sell ganja through the house of Marley. <laughs> you know, which yeah, I mean, if anybody, you know what, if any musician to have a line of ganja, it should be Bob Marley. It really should. I might be the only Bob Marley nerd he doesn't smoke. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I mentioned that just because you do talk about like I guess the commodification of Bob Marley. Oh, it's so big with him and Kurt, and yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and and then of course, you know, every like head shop ever has, you know, a Bob Marley tapestry in the background too and stuff. These things make Bob one of the most overrated and underrated artists of all time. Definitely. It's case by case. I think if people really listen in with the music, then yeah, it's kind of an underrated thing. But then the overrated thing comes in, especially with the people who just like, wear the merch or have the tapestry who are like kind of more unaware of the musical contributions or that maybe only have kind of a a somewhat surface level like understanding of things where it's like oh what's your favorite bob marley album legend okay like i mean don't get me wrong legend is a great like foray it's a great introduction to bob marley but you don't but i agree in the sense that you don't really get the intricacies unless you start going deeper into the discography kind of like prince where prince's greatest hits once again a great introduction but you don't really get kind of the intricacies of prince unless you kind of look at album by album there's a huge difference between like his self-titled 79 release and like purple rain or actually that kind of succession of um 1999 purple rain and sign of the times i think three of the best albums ever to be really honest with you. I mean, not just from a pop, funk, soul, R&B respect, but just in a music aspect, those three albums are some of the best. I mean, I think Purple Rain and Sign of the Times are a little bit better even than 1999 is, which that might irritate some Prince fans, just because I feel like 1999 was kind of the introduction to what would be kind of the definitive Prince sound of the 80s. And then Purple Rain, like, really honed it in. I feel like Purple Rain is kind of like a perfect record in that respect. Yep. Because it was just so tight and, like, so focused. And then Sign of the Times, kind of, you saw Prince go more experimental, especially with, like, pitch shifting and whatnot. And kind of going back to the start of this episode, Prince got digitally recreated as well for the Super Bowl. And uh, he had a quote, I believe, basically saying how he was against holograms. And I think he said it actually in response to the Tupac hologram because he was still alive. And I think they asked him about the Tupac hologram. And I think he said something specifically about not wanting to be like a hologram. And I think his basis was not only for exploitive things, because if anybody has a history or anybody knows what it's like to have been exploited as an artist, it was Prince. Um, and how he bucked the system in that way in regards to, you know, the artists formerly known as and all that was basically in response to how he was getting done over by Warner Brothers in his recording contract. But then I think he also kind of cited like a religious reason, too, because he was Jehovah's Witness later in his life. Mm. Oh, that makes more sense, because I won't lie. I've always kind of felt that Prince was a bit part of the machine because he's I mean, you kind of check out his material from before, like back in the 80s. And, and and to be fair, people change, right? But he definitely was a part of 
a lot of the stuff that I feel like he ended up preaching against as he got older. For sure. And I think that that's kind of what makes his career interesting. I mean, the 80s music that he had, it's all fantastic. But yeah, you do kind of feel like he is integrated in with kind of the big industry cogs, I guess. Right. At the time. Now, I don't think he was as integrated as like Michael Jackson was. (laughs) No. (laughs) I think Michael Jackson was kind of like the poster boy for like being integrated within the machine. And it is sad, though. All jokes aside, it is very sad. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. No. I mean, as great as MJ was, I do think that he was the poster boy for like the machine and artists within the machine. Yep. And the sad thing is, is that he was one of the only black musicians to really be played on MTV in the heyday because of that. Mm. And there's an interview with David Bowie calling that out. And it's great. You should watch that if you haven't. Yeah. I don't agree with him on everything, but he said some pretty amazing things that I'm like, Oh wow. That's so true. Well, yeah. And and he definitely advocated for other artists too. So that was really cool. He did. He did. Um, But speaking of artists as part of a machine, What if the artist literally was a machine? And this kind of leads into just a quick tad bit on uh, the recent experiment of this rapper, FN Mecca, created entirely from artificial intelligence. It was one of those things where this artificial intelligence rapper got signed to Capitol Records, the same Capitol Records that signed Frank Sinatra, signed an artificial intelligence rapper, and they got signed to Capitol Records, and many people were rightfully upset because they're like, we as artists have been grinding it out for years, if not decades, trying to get a record deal. And now here comes this AI piece of technology, and it's already getting signed. And basically, the reason it got actually shut down was, of course, the music really wasn't that good, number one. But number two, the AI rapper also started using racial slurs in its raps and uh the black community definitely did not did not feel that wait 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 like gigabyte like giga please <laughs> my gig is be hustling oh man, if I oh man if he actually would have put, i'll tell you if Mecca would have actually put out an album and called it giga please i would have i would have been I would have had to have listened to it. <laughs> I don't care how bad it is. I would have had to have listened to it. You sold me just on that. Like, it, it's almost like um, the Corey Feldman album where it's like, it's so bad. Like, it, you have to experience it. 24, 32. Bits, please. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so actually, that's in big part why FN Mecca actually got shut down was because of the controversy in regards to the use of slurs and whether or not there was a problem because a lot of people thought that the AI was generated by white people that were, you know, kind of finding a creative use, you know, or creative way to get their, you know, their pass, you know, so to speak. Oh, they wanted the G word pass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude. So Um, That was in big part why it got shut down, but also I think it got shut down because let's just be really honest, the music just was not good. Just like how we talked about in chat GPT and coming up with lyrics and especially rap lyrics, how it's awkward and disjointed and whatnot. You definitely felt that, I think, with FN Mecca's music, at least from what I heard of it. 
it just it didn't stack up really at all and so it was a failed experiment and i think the thing that was so funny was like it was literally days later that Capitol records dropped the project yeah it was in the same week that i heard that he got i was like okay and then all of a sudden i hear that uh yeah this is not gonna happen i'm like what isn't this like wasn't this within the same week that i just heard about him being signed so i was like whatever yes Yes, I think it was a situation where like FN Mecca got signed on like Monday and by Friday it was dropped. It was done. I love how like they let regular artists make sucky songs and then get better. But this one had a sucky song and he just decided to cut the cord. They're just like, no, we can't do this. They didn't give him a chance. Like that's discrimination right there. (laughs) (laughs) It might be discrimination to a bunch of white people too. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Right. No, it's just... It's just one of those things. And I remember how like rappers were legitimately concerned about like, oh, we're going to get replaced or, oh, this is the end times. Like they were thinking it was going to be like the sign of the apocalypse for like rappers as we know it. And then within the same week, it gets dropped. And it's like, yeah, it's not going anywhere. That's funny. Now, to be honest with you, the F and Mecca thing does create actually a topic that we can talk about in a later episode which is kind of the idea of like a digital band in the way that like Gorillaz was a digital band. Yes. Or the way that even like Daft Punk was kind of like a digital collective for the most part. So we can definitely dive into that a little bit more. Will we be replaced? Yeah, essentially the big question. But I think, you know, to maybe have some perspective on that topic and conversation, we should look towards the digital collectives that have already been established. And that would be like Gorillaz, Daft Punk. Um, I'm sure there's others that I'm I'm forgetting that only kind of exist in the, the digital space. But once again, this has been the Work Tape Podcast. It is your boy, Money Mitchell, Isaac Groovin Grover. Uh, drink water or you'll die. Uh, drink, drink water. Uh, have a good one. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>